Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Let me read this text. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think you of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. About a month ago, I was out in my yard multitasking. I was mowing my yard while simultaneously listening to a sermon on my iPhone, uh, my earbuds. I was listening to a, a, a 20th century preacher who's now deceased. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welchman who uh, was w- one of the top surgeons in London, and then he left his surgical career to become a pastor. And uh, anyway, his, his sermons are online, and I had just preached Acts chapter 3, and I kind of wondered, you know, I wonder what the good doctor said about Acts 3, so I listened to Acts 3, and what he had to say was, it was a good sermon. But he, uh, th- there was one line in particular that he said that just caught me. It arrested me, and, and I kept thinking about this line. He said, Christianity is not a philosophy. It is a phenomenon. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is a phenomenon. 
In other words, Christianity didn't arise because some people were batting ideas around. It wasn't like there were some philosophers, you know, with their pipes and their tweed jackets and leather elbows and they're like, well, what should we uh, come up with a religion based upon love? What do you think about that old chap? You know, and they didn't sort of concoct this, this system of, of thought. The reason Christianity arose is because something happened. Jesus happened. He was born of a virgin. It was a phenomenon. And, and the angels came. It was amazing. And then as Jesus uh, grew into manhood and came to his, his ministry, he was teaching as no one had ever taught before. And he was performing miracles that, that startled people. It was a phenomenon. And eventually he died on a cross. But even after that, he rose from the dead on the third day. And, and all of these guys who were with him, they weren't philosophers. They weren't PhDs. They were just working stiffs and fishermen and tax collectors. They, they were total, just regular guys. But they saw this phenomenon. And they went around saying, he's risen. This is incredible. Even when the church was born in Acts chapter 2, uh, it was a phenomenon that happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly... There was this power in the church to witness. And so Christianity has always arisen because of God's power that's at work. Now, I say that because I do think that when you talk to people about Christianity, often we do conceive of it as sort of a philosophy. Sometimes we think of it as sort of a moral philosophy. You know, be good, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others, you know, avoid trans fats. I mean, you know, just all this kind of... Good, healthy teaching about how to be a good, healthy, decent person. And, uh, and does Christianity have moral, ethical teaching in it? Oh, yeah, there's tons, right? But, but the point is, you don't become a Christian by just trying to keep the rules. That, that if you just try to keep some of the ethical teaching and try to become a better person and not do as many bad things to do more good things, that's not Christianity. Christianity is a phenomenon where God, by his power, brings us to a place of saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus can forgive me and transform me by his power to be a different person by his grace. Nor do we, uh, when we say it's a philosophy, nor are we saying that Christianity is it's just the- theology. You know, sometimes we think of Christianity that way. It's a lot of theology, right? And does Christianity have theology in it? Oh, yeah, there's tons, and it's great. I love studying it. But you can study all the theology, you can read the theology books, you can get a PhD in theology, you can be excellent at talking about Christian theology. But if you haven't experienced the power of God to save your soul, if you haven't experienced the Holy Spirit bringing you to repentance and faith in Jesus, if you haven't experienced the phenomenon of salvation, you're not a Christian, no matter how well you can articulate Christian thought and ideas and history and theology. Well, here we have Acts chapter 4, end of chapter 4 into chapter 5, and and what we find in these verses are vignettes of life in the early church. The end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5 is a little photo album with snapshots, snapshots of what was going on in the, the earliest church there in Jerusalem just after Jesus had risen from the dead. And and in each of these snapshots, this isn't a comprehensive picture of the whole church, this isn't saying everything that was going on, but in each of these snapshots, what do we see? We see a phenomenon taking place of God's power. I love verse 33 of chapter 4. I feel like it's a good kind of summary verse of this 
little section, kind of rambling section of different snapshots. Verse 33 says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. And actually, that, that phrase, much grace, it's the same phrase as, as great power. So you could translate it, great power, great grace. It was a phenomenon of great power and great grace upon the church. That's why things were happening in the church, not because there were some idea that was being bandied about that people thought was interesting. It's because grace and power, the hand of God was operating in the church, and it was arresting people, and it was shaking things up. So let's look at each of these three vignettes, and they're, they're all different, but, but you get kind of this, this sense of what God was doing. And the first vignette is in verses 32 to 37 of chapter 4, and, and here we see that this phenomenon of great grace and great power from God upon the church, the first thing that it did is it transformed the church into a community of radical generosity. Radical generosity. Look at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. That's a remarkable sentence. You know, they were one in heart and mind. They they were so together, they were so unified and loved each other that that they even shared their possessions with each other. They treated money among them the way that family members treat money among themselves. They, They shared whoever had need. So verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales. They put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed. So, so people, every once in a while, would sell a, a chunk of land or some assets, and then they'd bring that money. They'd put it at the apostles' feet, which would be the equivalent of putting it in the offering plates, probably what we would do today, or put it in the offering box. But they would put it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would take that money. And then as there were people in the church who, who were struggling to eat, struggling to have the necessities, they would give money to those people. And, you know, that, that's incredible, right? And here's an, an example is verses 36 and 37. There's this guy named Barnabas who's doing this. And Barnabas is mentioned here because he becomes a hero later on in the book. And so here's the first mention of Barnabas, and we'll, we'll see him more in the book of Acts. But he's a role model of this selling a piece of land, selling a field, bringing the money to the apostles. So these people who were unrelated to each other who are now bound together by this common faith, were even selling possessions to bring money to help the poor people in their midst. I would say, that's a phenomenon. (laughs) That just doesn't happen. It's remarkable that people would treat each other like that. it's, It's dumbfounding to think of people doing that. I mean, could you imagine? I don't know if you have any assets. Maybe you have a few. Maybe you have none. Maybe some of you have a a, a vacation cottage down in the Cape somewhere, or maybe you've got a little piece of land that you know you have in Situate or Abington, and you've always kind of kept that. You thought, well, maybe someday we'll build a little something there or develop it, or or maybe you've got a an old car, a vintage car, under a piece of cloth in your garage, or, or maybe you've got some stocks that your grandfather gave you in his will, and you've always held on to those stocks. You know, something. You've got some assets. Could you imagine liquidating those assets? And, and you heard there were some people in need in the church and bringing it to the church office one day and saying, like, look, I've got this many thousands of dollars from this sale, 
you know, here's $40,000, and uh, could you just take this, I trust you guys, just use it and give it to people in the church who are having a hard time paying the bills and, and eating and that. You just go ahead. I'll... That would be a phenomenon. <laughs> it would be like, what? And yet that seems to be regularly what was happening in this church, that kind of radical generosity. What would make people do that? Why would people behave like that? You know, you experience a crazy phenomenon like this, and you've got to think, well, why is that happening? What's the cause? It, it stirs you to, to want to know more. And, and here's the thing. When you have experienced great grace from God, it really does change you to be a more gracious person. When you've experienced generosity from God in His grace, it, it transforms you to be a more generous person. And, and I use the word specifically experienced. I'm not talking about a philosophy of grace, an idea, a, a, a quote about grace from a theology book. I'm talking about experiencing God's grace in your life. When you experience it, it changes you. Now, now what is grace? We should probably define grace real quickly. Grace, what do we mean by great grace? God's grace is, it just means getting something really good that you totally don't deserve. That's grace. It's charity. It's when you don't deserve it, you've got no claim to it, and you get this really great thing, a great gift, like someone giving, selling their land and giving it to you and saying, well, there you go. That's grace. You know, grace is the opposite of a paycheck. A paycheck is something you are owed. It's something you deserve. You work for it. You sweat for it. It's yours. If you don't get it, you can sue someone. But that's not how grace works. You, you can't sue anyone for grace. You can't get mad at God if he doesn't give you grace because you you're not owed it. In fact, we, owe, we deserve the opposite of grace. And so, so when you've experienced God's grace in your life, when, when God's grace has really rocked you to your core, it changes you. When you, you, know, when you come to that, that place in your life of realizing that spiritually and morally, you're totally bankrupt. You don't have anything to bring to God. When, when you finally get past this lie that we all tell ourselves, People say this lie all the time to themselves. You know, I'm not perfect, but well, I'm not that bad. You know, there's a lot of worse people than me, and I think, I think I'm close enough. I think I'm good enough, you know? You've got to get past that deception. People tell themselves that all the way to hell. You've got to come to the place of realizing, spiritually and morally, you're bankrupt. You've got to come to the cross of Jesus and declare bankruptcy. And come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinful man. I can't save myself. I can't justify myself. I don't have moral capital to bail myself out. I need the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for me. And I need to put my faith in that and my hope in Jesus. And, and when Jesus forgives you and you come to grips with his forgiveness for all the, all the, the lies you've told and all the gossip and all the drinking and partying and all of the, the immorality and all of the impurity and all of the pride and all of the, the violence and the anger and the outbursts and all that stuff, you realize God's forgiven that. That just changes a man. It changes a woman. As you realize an experience of God's grace to you, and it makes you a more generous person. And, and once you've come to experience God's grace... Not only that he's forgiven your past sins, but he's still working in your life. And then, you know, you read the Bible and it's talking about the inheritance that awaits us in eternal life. Boy, when, when that hits you, what's a few bucks between believers, really? 
What's a few thousand bucks between believers? I mean, who cares? Hey, you need something? There you go. Whatever. Man, I'm saved. Wow. And so are you and our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you've experienced forgiveness from God, it, it helps you to become a more forgiving person. When you've experienced the patience of God, it, it transforms you into a more patient person. And so God's grace transforms us. That's why they were like that. It's because great grace was upon them and grace pow, great power, and they had experienced the great forgiveness through Christ. And it made them a different kind of community, a community that was marked by the very thumbprint of God of grace and mercy and compassion and generosity. What would that look like at South Shore Baptist Church if we were to practice that kind of thing here? Well, in some ways, let me just say I'm encouraged that I I see that, this kind of thing happening in our church in varying degrees. People are generous with each other. Uh, One of the ways we do this is uh, in our church in particular, different churches may do this different ways, but we have something called the Deacon's Fund. So people literally can bring money and give it to the church, and it gets distributed to those in need. In fact, if you look, uh, you know, in the pew rack in front of you, I got one of these envelopes. There's these little tithing envelopes. You can put a tithe in the offering plate. But you'll see you can check off, like, if you want some money to go to the general operating fund, the missions fund, the building fund. And then you'll see this line here that says deacons. So if you were to, like, put 20 bucks in here and say 20 bucks goes to the deacons fund, that 20 bucks goes to our group of deacons. And then what happens is they, they meet with people who have real needs. People who can't put food on the table for that month, people who can't pay the heating bill, people who can't, you know, pay the electric bill, whatever, and help people out financially. And it's not some big, nameless, behemoth government program with all kinds of waste and fraud. You know, it's, it's people that we know. It's us sitting down with people we know where there's relationship and accountability and people who are in need, and we're able to help people and pray with people. And if there's a more holistic issue there, we can address that. So, so it's a really cool thing. And, and I, I don't know over the years, over the decades, how many, literally it has to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars have flowed from people to people through this fund. It's, it's really an amazing, kind of one of our little kept secrets here in the church of, God's, of your generosity and God's grace. But it's not just that. I mean, it's it's generosity. You know, you don't, you don't have to get a tax write-off for it to be a generous gift, right? I mean, uh, I've had people come to me in the church and they say, hey, pastor, can you take this check and I want you to give it to so-and-so because I heard they're having a tough time, but don't tell them who I am. I love that. That's like one of the best parts of my job. I'm like, okay, you know, I get to be like, you know, the Easter Bunny Santa Claus pastor and here's a check, you know. Well, from whom? I can't say. <laughs> you know, enjoy and That's great. I love that. I love that part of the job. Opening our homes to each other, opening our lives to each other. One of our elders uh, and his wife in our church, and I don't want to embarrass Eldon and Vera, so I'll leave them anonymous, but they, um, (laughs) like over the decades, they have had so many people not just stay overnight, but live in their house. People, People in the church who are going through tough times or had some problem with their house and they didn't have a place to live, like, a lot of people have lived a lot of time. I think there's church members in their house right now uh, who are just in between a house thing and they're looking to go somewhere else. And I mean, I'm telling you, people, that's real generosity. Like, you know, you want some money? Okay, I'll help you. But my house, okay? It's my house. That's my castle. That's, you know, I, go, I, I love you all, but then I need to go to my house. <laughs> I need to have my little space. And so to have people not just stay overnight but live in your house for a couple months because they're in between something, 
That's real generosity at that point. It's taking each other out to lunch and knowing someone is hard up or between work and don't worry about it, just buy their meal, you know, whatever. Just all those little acts of generosity and kindness. For some of us, it's maybe not money. I'll tell you, sometimes I think in this culture, especially in New England, being generous with your time is almost just as big of a deal. We're all going 80 miles an hour, literally and figuratively, zipping around. And it's so, you know, yeah, you can waste some of my money, but don't waste my time. That's a real waste. So to give someone time is a gift. To know someone is struggling with something in a church and instead of just walking by them and giving them the squeeze on the shoulder and he's like, hey man, I'm praying for you, all right, but I gotta go. You know, to, to say, hey listen, I'll take you out to lunch and you can just, you know, vomit out the woes for an hour and I'm just gonna listen. I'm just gonna be there for you. That's a gift of, of time and generosity. And so as we are affected and transformed not by the idea but by the phenomenon of God's saving grace in our lives. It changes us. The more it sinks in to become generous, forgiving, patient people with others. Of course, uh, before we move on to the second vignette, there is a flip side to giving, right? And that is you have to be willing to receive, which Maybe it's even harder. Okay, if you had to choose to be on the giving end of charity or on the receiving end of charity, raise your hand if you'd much rather be on the giving end of charity. Okay, yeah, that's right. Me too, I, you know, because we're all independent and we all, we're fine and we don't need help and this too shall pass and, you know, all these things we tell ourselves and, and we're tough, rugged New Englanders and that's great. I, I'm a big fan of self-reliance and, and individualism, don't get me wrong, but if, if we're all givers, but no one is humble enough to say, I need help, well, then how does it work? Like, who are we going to give to? At some point, you have to be able to say to somebody, how you doing? Bad. <laughs> Whoa, really? What's going on? This is going on. How can I help? You could do this. You know, otherwise, it's never going to happen, because we're all like, how are you? Fine, we're fine, you're good, we're good, yay! You know, let's have a we're all fine party, and... It's great. But it's not true. We struggle. Yeah, sometimes you are fine, but sometimes you're not. And, and so if we're going to be a community of believers who care about each other, that also means we have to have a level of transparency and trust where we're willing to say, to, you know, in the right time, in the right place, I'm not okay or I do need this help. And the great thing is the cross of Jesus helps us with that too. Because if you've ever come to the foot of the cross as a, and become a Christian and you've stood at the foot of the cross so to speak, and you've said, Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you to save me. I can't save myself. You have been at the lowest place of receiving grace. So the cross not only trains us to be good givers, the cross also trains us to be humble receivers. And so that giving and receiving takes place as we're impacted by the grace of God in our lives. Let's look at the second vignette. That's a vignette of God's grace and power. Here's another vignette of God's power. But now we go from a nice feel-good vignette, a little bit of a spooky one. You know, in, in the first one, the believers are all one heart and mind, and in the second one, uh, believers have their hearts stopped, it seems. Uh, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira. In the first vignette, we have Barnabas, who's the role model, but now we have Ananias and Sapphira who are foils to Barnabas, and, and they're people who uh, are not role models for us. And 
And this is one where God's power is at work, but it's at work in a different way, in judgment. God's power in judgment is at work. So here's the story, Ananias and Sapphira. They're also bringing property in. They've sold some stuff, but they've kept some money back and kind of lie about it. And, uh, and then Peter confronts Ananias. He's like, how could you do this? And Ananias hears this. He drops dead. Verse 6, the young men come forward and take his body. Verse 6 is evidence that there was a vibrant youth ministry in the church. Um, and his wife comes in, and she, she's going along with the scam, and, and she gets smited by God. She falls dead. You're like, wow, what, what a story. Isn't that an amazing story? Um, Two questions emerge out of this text, this, this story of Ananias and Sapphira. The first question is this, uh, at least two questions I have. One is, what exactly did they do that was wrong? What was their crime? All right, and, and so it's a little bit confusing. Was the crime that they sold some property but kept some of the money for themselves? I don't think that's exactly what the crime was because it seems that Peter is saying that they didn't have to give the money if they didn't want to. You know, verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, all this giving that was taking place in the church was totally voluntary. This wasn't a cult. You know, cults are like, hey, join our cult, and you have to sell all your possessions and give it to the leader, and then he'll hold on to it and distribute every, to everyone and that kind of thing. This wasn't a cult. Every, all of these selling of property and giving of gifts was totally voluntary. And so Peter says, look, it was your, your property. You didn't have to sell it. And after you sold it, like it was your money, but you gave it. So, so I don't think the problem was that they held back some funds. I think the problem was that they lied about how much they were giving. Because you see at the end of verse um, 3, he says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept money for yourselves? And at the end of verse 4, you have not lied to men but to God. So the problem seems to be that they sold, okay, sold a property, they got money, and then they brought money, but they didn't bring all of it. But it seems that, kind of reading between the lines here, piecing this together, they were somehow indicating publicly that what they were giving was the full sale price of the property. So they were saying this is all the money for the property, but it wasn't all the money. In other words, they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to be seen as really generous people. Wow, they're... Ananias and Sapphira, they're like Barnabas. They sold a property and gave, is that all the money? This is all the money from the sale. We're super generous, right? And, and so that would make people think that they were awesome Christians. And, and perhaps even, I, I was wondering about this, that maybe there, there's even this kind of Greco-Roman mindset. You know, in, in Hellenistic culture, there was this system of patronage where, where people who had more power would give gifts and they would be patrons of people beneath them and then those people beneath them would owe them favors and honor and respect. And so the whole Roman world was, was built upon this massive hierarchy of patronage from starting with Caesar, the ultimate patron on down. And everyone had someone above them who was their patron and they were patronizing somebody else. So maybe, who knows, maybe they were thinking this is a good way to get some respect. And yet, they wanted their cake and eat it too. They also didn't want to give up all that money. So they, they said they were giving it all, but they really weren't. They were lying about it because they wanted people to think well of them, but also wanted to hold on to this. And when I think about it that way, I go, ooh, ouch. Uh, yeah, that's a common temptation for religious people. That's a common temptation for all people. To, to want to present yourself 
as really moral and upright and a good person, but also carve out some space back here to kind of be able to do what you want and live how you want and sort of keep those two worlds apart. There's my public, oh, I'm a good person, I'm great, and back here, well, you know, but I do got this, this is my little thing. You know, we struggle with that. I mean, haven't you ever done it? I've done it. I've been in a Bible study or something, and people are asking questions in the Bible study, and I come up with a couple of really good answers. And I'm like, wow, that's right, I just gave that answer. That just happened right here. I said that. And other people are like, wow, he really knows his stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, I do. What can I say? Ah. You feel good. You go home and you're like, yeah, well, and that prayer I prayed, that was, that was pretty good. You know, I, I was kind of surprised myself how that prayer came out. <laughs> but then we go home, you know, and we're driving home and someone cuts us off on the freeway and we're like, you know, full on rabid pit bull mode. You know, like, what? What, what happened? I, I was just, you know, super Christian, and now I'm, you know, road rage man. Like, how, how did I do this? And so, so we have these, these duplicities. We have these lies. We have these presentations that we make of ourselves, but we have sin. And we have our selfishness here, and we don't want people to see that hidden back. Or maybe you're a teenager, you know, or a kid, and you're in, um, you know, the youth group, which is great. I'm glad you're in the youth group. And but, you know, you go to youth group, you know how to sing the songs, you know how to answer the, the, the questions in the Bible studies, and people look at you and they're like, wow, you go to church every Sunday? You go to youth group every Sunday? That's great. But, but you know, what, like, what do you do with your smartphone? And, and what do you, how do you talk at school when you're not around the church kids, but you're around the, the lacrosse team? And, and what do you do on Saturday night over at your friend's house where you said you were just going to watch a movie and then you show up on Sunday. You know, what, what these, these bifurcations in our lives, like Ananias and Sapphira, where we try to present ourselves as religious and decent and together, but there's this stuff in the closet, this junk, this mess of sin that we need to, to be honest about. Well, we can fool a lot of people, but we can't fool God. And God sees through it here. And that brings us to the second question, which is why did Ananias and Sapphira have to get killed? Why did God smite them? Why did they fall dead at the feet of the apostles? So, so their sin was lying and leading this kind of double life, but there was then this, this consequence of judgment upon them. I mean, is, isn't that a little overboard? I mean, don't, don't we all do this to some degree or another? Why did they die? I think the answer is we have to remember that our God is still a holy, holy, holy God. He's still the Lord. He's still the maker of heaven and earth. He's still, we still owe him everything. And we live our whole lives before God. Whether we acknowledge him or not, your life and mine are lived before the, a theater before God. And he sees our hearts and our thoughts. And, and we can, you know, I can keep up a, a good job faking you out while doing this back here. But God was never faked out for one second. He sees the whole thing. I think sometimes we, we can think of God as, as kind of a force out there. That's a, a common idea today, that God is sort of a universal energy. And, you know, if you, you send out good thoughts in the universe, they'll bounce back and good things will come back to you, that kind of idea. And, and you know, that, that's great. Boy, I, I like God as kind of like a trampoline force that's just giving me good things back. But that kind of God never holds me accountable. Or maybe we think of God as sort of like a senile old grandfather, 
who just kind of smiles and hands out candy and, you know, pats you on the head no matter what you do. Oh, it's okay. There's candy, you know, like. But not this God. He is the holy, holy, holy creator and owner of everyone. He owns us. We're his. And we're accountable for these lives. It's not your life. It's his life. And we're accountable for how we live these lives. And God is the just and perfect judge. And so he he brings judgment. And and it strikes fear in these people. You know? The, The question isn't, why did Ananias and Sapphira die? I think a better question is, why are any of us still alive? Why am I up here upright talking and taking nourishment? You know, I, as I'm, I'm a sinful man too before a holy God. And, and that reality grips the church. That, that's how the church takes it. They realize this is an holy and awesome God. Yes, a loving God, a God of compassion, a God of kindness, but still a holy God. He's both. And, and so this fear grips the church. That's the proper response to this phenomenon that takes place of this sudden judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira. There's fear. Verse 5, a great fear seized all who happened, heard what had happened. Verse 11, a great fear seized the whole church. So we have great grace and great power, but also great fear and great fear as people are, are gripped by what God has done there. And, and that's, that's the right response to the holiness of God is that we should live in the fear of God. Fear of God doesn't mean fear of like, you know, terrorists. It's not like fear of, oh, I heard there's a rabid pit bull running around loose out in the yard. I'm scared. It's not like that kind of afraid. It's, it's reverence and awe before our holy creator. It's, it's a sense of, of awe at his majesty and fear before him, and realizing, again, that my life is accountable to God. When you really fear the Lord, you pray differently. You pray, like, you pray like this. You say, oh, God, search my heart and see if there's anything in here that's offensive to you. Oh, God, purify me. I want to be a holy man. I want to be a holy woman. Oh, Lord, put to death sin in my life. Oh, God, anything that's offensive, purify me so that I might be wholly yours. I want to be holy as you are holy, God. I want to know the life and joy that come with obedience. I want my life to be sacrificed before you, but I know that I am holding things back. Oh, God, point the spotlight on things that I don't even realize I'm holding back because I fear you, oh, God. I love you and I fear you because you are the holy God who made me. And when that kind of fear comes upon a church, that's when revival comes. In all the great revivals, you look through history, one of the great characteristics of great revivals down through history is a rediscovery of the holiness of God and and a great repentance among his people and among the communities. What a phenomenon. So God... Is it work? This is not a philosophy. This is not just some ideas to argue about and have a debate about on Facebook. This is power, great grace and great power, radical generosity, this incredible judgment that brings great fear. And then here's the last one. I'll just touch on this one briefly. It's in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 5. And we'll call this God's great grace and power in, and we'll call it miracles and multitudes. God's great grace and power created miracles and multitudes. There were miracles performed and multitudes of people coming to believe in Jesus. 
So you see miracles, verse 12, the apostles perform many miraculous signs and wonders. Verse 15, people are being healed, the sick are being healed, people with evil spirits are being set free. I mean, Peter is so held in awe that even as he walks through the street, people are trying to get into his shadow, thinking that there might be power there. I mean, God was at work through these apostles in dramatic and amazing ways. Does God's power still work today? Can God still heal people today and, and do dramatic things uh, well, uh, I believe he can. You know, if, if you didn't hear Godwin's sermon last week, Pastor Godwin, those of you who knew, he was the guy who was up here doing announcements. Pastor Godwin preached last week on, on this topic of miracles, and I would just really encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It was just really, really good teaching on that. But yeah, the bottom line is God still answers prayer today, and he still does miraculous things, and we should pray. I, I'm not expecting that anyone's shadow here is going to heal people. You know, the apostles were unique, and yet God still answers prayer today. And so we need to pray boldly. We need to pray for God to heal sick people. You know, we need to pray for God to heal downcast people. We need to pray boldly. And he, he can do it or not do it if he chooses, but we need to pray and ask. And, and we need to pray for, for people who are enslaved to addictions, and we need to pray for, for spouses who, who don't want anything to do with Jesus. We need to pray for kids who are wayward. We need to pray for God's power and grace to be poured out on difficult situations and pray and pray and keep on praying because God can do these things. And prayer is so often our last resort. It should be our first resort and our constant weapon as we pray for the power of God to do the miraculous. But remember the point of the miracles wasn't just miracles in and of themselves. It was to to support a message And so this is the other thing we see here is that great grace and great power not only created miracles, but it caused multitudes to come to Jesus. Look at verse uh, 14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Just continued growth as people were hearing the message of Jesus and being affected by the phenomenon of the gospel. The gospel is not just a message. It's a phenomenon of power that saves people and brings them to faith in Christ. Really, I think what's going on in verses 12 to 16 is, it, is it's God answering the prayer they prayed back in chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, which Godwin preached on last Sunday. So verses 29 and 30, they said, give us boldness and do miracles. And verses 12 to 16 is the answer to the prayer. They're boldly proclaiming the gospel. People are being saved, and they're doing miracles. So, so God is answering that prayer. God is working in power through his people. It's awesome. And I have, to, I have to say, that when I read this story in verses 12 to 16, this last vignette, and I see people at being added to their number and people being affected by the gospel message, I don't know about you, but I, I just think, oh, Lord, would you just do that again in New England? And my heart just is like, mm, God, would you please work in power and grace in New England? And for me, New England is not, is not a, a philosophy or an idea. It's real people that I know. It's real people that I love, people who are my friends, people that I care about. And, and I love these people. I know these people. But, you know, it's like their lives are what my life would be without Jesus. It's all about making money and kids' sports and watching TV and going skiing and, you know, eating well and the Pats game and, you know, whatever. And they're all... 
None of these things are wrong, but that's it. It's, it's the sum and substance of their lives. That's all there is to it. God is not anywhere in the picture. The holy God before whom we must answer is not on the radar. And, and I'm fine, and I'm all set. You're not all set. You're lost, just as I am without Christ. You need a Savior. You know, I just think of New England. It's like, when does Jesus ever get mentioned in New England? Like when you get cut off in traffic or whatever, but that's it. He's just a swear. And he should be worshipped. He should be worshipped. And I'm not just saying that to the people out there. I'm saying that to the people in here, to myself. He should, he should be praised and glorified. God should be the center of our universe, not, not an afterthought. And I just think, oh, God, would you please come and do something again in New England like you have in centuries past in the great revivals that have been here? Lord, would you open that person's heart and that person's heart? I can see faces in front of me and and names. Just like, God, work in them. Oh, Lord, may may Jesus no longer be disregarded and pushed aside in New England, but may people come saying, what must I do to be saved? May people come to know Christ. I just know God can do this, and we need to pray and ask God to do this in our region. If, If you're planning on staying here in New England for the long term, which is like what most New Englanders do. I'm planning on being here, you know, as long as as God would have me here. Like, as long as we're here, can we just like pact together, make a pact that we're just going to keep praying fervently for our region to be reached with the gospel? What, what, What if like, you know, what if we die and then our grandparents, our grandkids' generation is the generation when revival comes? That's cool. I'll be on the prayer side of it. Why? Whatever. I don't, you know, I'd love to see it, but I don't have to. Let's just pray that God would do this again. Let's glorify God by believing that he still has great grace and great power, that it has not been exhausted, but that there are storehouses of divine grace that are still to be poured out upon our region. And let us pray and pray. And if we go down praying, praise God. May he answer these prayers. May New England once again sing his praise. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask this very thing of you, that you would exert your sovereign hand, that you would flex your mighty divine arm, and that, Lord, you would gather up people that we love here in our region. Oh, Lord, use us. Use us to be devoted to prayer in little groups here and there on our own, praying daily, Lord, for your work in this region. Help us to be a church where praying for revival is just part of what we do. And God, I pray, not only use us to pray, but use us to speak. Give us boldness, like Godwin preached last Sunday. Help us, when we open our mouths, just to say a little bit more than we would normally say, that we would be courageous to speak the name of Jesus. And God, may you surprise us with people who are interested where we thought there would just be silence. Oh, Lord, help us to engage. Help us to do it. And God, if you would be so kind, may we see your, your reviving hand. May we see your great and mighty deeds renewed in our time and in our day. We pray this through Christ's mighty name. Amen.